Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Zuhyi, Zuhyi, which is, of course, Chinese for Achtung, Achtung. Oh, yes, the only language appropriate for these extraordinary times. Um, now, if you're listening to this podcast in the spring of 2020, you'll understand the tone and content entirely. If you're listening a year later while sipping a latte in Starbucks, if there still is a Starbucks, after dropping the kids at school, if there still is a school, you'll only have a distant recollection of what we're going on about. Um, Unless, of course, we're all pushing around shopping trolleys like the bloke in road. Um, But for those of you downloading in a timely fashion, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. So the nation is on a war footing. We keep being told this. We've been moved. So we've moved the podcast to DEFCON 1. James and I will continue to broadcast from silos in West London and Wiltshire throughout the crisis. I've broken with my normal home working routine and I'm sat in my underpants in my office. Actually, you know what? I, I don't know about you, Jack. I don't know about you, James, but um, uh, my other half is now at home because her office have been they've been dispersed. You know, they've yeah. been sent um, home and she's working on a laptop. My home working routine has been found out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorely, sorely found out the business of me just doing what I want when I want. Um, there actually being no routine, eating lunch at five to twelve. I mean, honestly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I've been it's, busted. It's, 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 it, I know, I know, I know how you feel. I mean, I've got a four under the roof now because um, uh, Ned is back. We managed to get him back from New Zealand. Yeah. We've got Daisy coming home from school this afternoon. That's it, probably till September. Yeah. I mean, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, you know, but, in times but, of crisis, but, you've got but to needs. Needs must, and we're ju- we're doing our bit by um, not actually sitting in a room together and gobbing on each other whilst pronouncing about the Second World War. So um, we're doing our bit. We hope you are too. Now, of course, many of you have been in touch asking for more content. Well, as the old saying goes, be careful what you wish for, <laughs> um, because from this week we have in- we've increased our schedule to daily, sometimes twice a day. Tuesdays and Thursdays will continue to feature the pair of us refusing to be restrained by any sense of linear propriety. Of course, the rest of the week will feature bonus content. Um, and first up, we have ways of making you talk. We'll prov- be providing our version of a book at bedtime. Um, every day we're going to release a chapter of me reading. Uh, Zeno's the Cauldron. Um, it, uh, it's a book we've talked to about a lot on the on the podcast. We, in fact, we did an extract to Christmas. Although I will be rereading that. I'm not. Gonna, we're not going to recycle the old stuff. It's a fabulous book written by uh, a man who was who was at the Battle of Arnhem um, in the Pathfinder Company. It's been out of print for decades, and since I read a chapter at Christmas, all secondhand versions seem to have disappeared. Um, I hope you enjoy it. It'll take about twelve days to get through. Well, no, it'll take about. Now we're going to do a chapter a day, about, aren't we? Um, a chapter a day. Yeah, so it's going to take about three weeks. It's 22 chapters, about three weeks to get through. Um, but it's really worth it. Some chapters are much longer than others. Others are quite pithy and short, and others are, are great long um, whole days of action. But it's um, really worth it, and we'll have a thorough discussion about the story and its enigmatic author once we're done, because there's quite a story behind the author. Anyway, it certainly is, isn't James, it? James, hello. Hello, how I are mean, you doing? Uh, Jay, 
you're in your office, which, of course, we've been told is acoustically perfect. Acoustically perfect. <laughs> yeah, well, it is quite, because it's quite tight. It's obviously lined with vast numbers of books. I don't know how many books I've got in here at the moment. I've also got a lock-up up the road, a sort of old shipping container, which is also full of books and yet more World War Two ephemera. Various bits and pieces in here as well to sort of, you know, to keep me inspired, whether it be pictures of Viv yep. Richards or um, pictures of Spitfires. And yeah, this you know this is. But but James, I've read your Battle of Britain book (laughs) recently as an audio book, and you're a bit down on the Spitfire. Okay, you don't give the Mark One. You don't give the Mark One a good. I'm just going to angle this so that you can see it, because dear listeners, we are actually in video link here, and you'll see the Spitfire Mark Five that is sitting behind me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're not talking about the Mark Five here. You, in your Battle of Britain book, you give the, you know, there's all the stuff about the. Because I remember, I remember, of course, as a as a as a youngster, the Spitfire's turning circle was the thing that was got wheeled out for the Mark One because we all know the Mark One, um, you know, didn't have super injection all that sort of thing, so it would cut out and yeah. uh, 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 and all that sort of thing. But the, it was the turning circles was the big thing, and in your book, you go pa turning circle nonsense. The ME One Hundred Nine is a much better airplane, and I, I, I'm 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 just holding that in my heart. For, uh, you know, the ME109, I feel a bit. The ME109E, the Emil, in 1940 is better than the Spitfire Mark I. But, you know, the the point is, is the the genius of the Spitfire is that in 1940 it's still at the beginning of its development. And uh, its basic design is so good that you can upgrade it, you can make it better. Whereas I think you can argue that the. the, the ME109F and Gs that followed, you know, actually were, were never quite the plane that the Emil was. And that actually, if you think no. it was sort of first designed and first flew in 34, 35, you know, by 1940, that's already quite an old aircraft. And actually, there's feet, bits of the ME109 would look awesome in 1940, but by 1944, actually look a little bit out of date, I think. You know, compared to yeah. Mustangs yeah, yeah. and the latest. Yeah, but you're really down on the spit. You're really down <laughs> on the Spitfire in that book. Anyway, I think here's the thing. I think um, a thing that would be interesting to talk about, given given what's going on, because yep. I mean, we are lit. We are right now. No, make no mistake. Last year, um, uh, in my touring show, I used to joke about how we were living in a history book, and I couldn't wait to read the history book about now, right? But actually, what we were living in was politics. Lots of to and fro politics. Um, that might change things, might not. The, the you know, the, we didn't know, did we? Uh, no. And and a lot of people didn't like the tone of the politics. Blah blah blah. But that was it. That was the extent of it. And also, kind of paralysed minority governments. But we are right now living in a we are living in a history book right now. Yeah. Make no mistake, aren't we? We are living in a in a colossal global <clears> event <throat> in which we're playing our little little part. Yep. And events that. Uh, impacting literally on everyone's lives yes. uh, in, in, a, in a total war style, if you, if, if you want. And so I thought it'd be quite, quite interesting to talk about, uh, you know, because we're at the beginning, aren't we? This is September 1939. Because let's, let's face it, a lot of people have been doing a bit, drawing a lot of analogies, and including the Prime Minister, who obviously fancies a bit of the old Churchill stuff. Yeah, and always has done, and has writ- famously written a book about him that's kind of a bit bonkers. But I did a platform but, with but, him once but, on that. Did you? Yeah, I was in conversation with Boris. He was talking about Churchill, and it was at Blenheim Palace, and it was it was the most weird, weird evening. He was very charming, very nice, every bit as nice and charming as you would expect him to be, but really, really yeah, yeah. weird. So the with it was in the orangery at Blenheim Palace, and we were in a kind of sort of yeah. you know a, an annex room at the back of it beforehand and and the rodgery there is very very long and narrow 
And so there were kind of rows of seats either side going a very, very long way down to the far end, which was a stage. And, and there was a kind of sort of, yeah. there was a kind of route way through, through down the middle. And as we came out, yes. it was time to go on stage. He said, no, James, you, you, you go ahead. You, you go ahead. Uh, and I said, don't be ridiculous. You know, you're the, you're the main man here. This is your, your gig. You, you lead on. He goes, no, no, lead on. I insist. Lead on, McDuff. Lead on. Um, so anyway, he kept, and it got embarrassing. So I went, well, OK, fine. So I kind of walked off. And <laughs> uh, 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 a third of the way down the hall, no, halfway down the hall, he overtook me and went on. Like, why would you do that? Yeah. It's just so weird. Anyway, then we got on stage. It was absolutely clear. He knew bugger all. Right. He, he could talk broad brush, but he no detail whatsoever. Uh, and he'd yep. obviously thought, I'll oh, come up the M40. I'll leave it absolutely last minute. I'll just wing this. It'll be fine. Um, but there was just no prep, no research whatsoever. And he didn't know any details. And he just sort of kept going, yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, his speech is marvellous, marvellous, marvellous. And then wouldn't give any example at all. The whole thing was just really, really weird. And I thought, oh, wow, you're, you're a bit, bit kind of not much substance there, is there? So a bit like a bit like me in this podcast, then. No, <laughs> no, at all. Totally different. I tell you what, if we'd had, if if it had been me and Boris sitting here talking about Second World War, we'd have dried up halfway through the second episode. I'm telling you. <laughs> no, I mean, it, well, he's he's having to do detail now, isn't he? Um, here's the thing. I mean, he's, yeah, he he's he's getting his he's getting his big moment. But the thing is, so so a lot of people, and the other thing I've noticed an awful lot of is people going, oh, you know. Thank God we didn't have Twitter during World War Two because because everyone's arguing and not getting on. But but the thing is, right, <laughs> yeah. I think I think this is and this is this is kind of like a thing we got that, that's worth really worth talking about um, is that when the war started, the idea that um, uh, everyone just knuckled down and got on with it and did as they were told and uh, yeah. agreed with the government and thought the government was getting it right and just just you know uh uh took their medicine as it were and and came together and worked as one is it, it there's not a lot of truth in that is there no no it's really interesting everyone 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 was really grumbling very very quickly Put, and, putting uh, it mildly i mean for instance for instance evacuation right which is which is my memory my memory of the you know and this is post post angus called angus calder as well isn't it yeah. my memory of the people's war my memory of uh, the social history of the Second World War. When I was, I always used to think, yeah, but Spitfires. But the, my memory of the social war, the social history of the Second World War, is kids at railway stations being evacuated. Yeah, with little with luggage labels luggage, around them, dressed like just like Paddington, and being and being sent sent away to the country. And then the and then the sort of quite mixed stories of of, of what evacuation was like. But when they initiated evacuation, right? Because after all. Right now we've got this thing of, are people being, uh, you know, they're being doing as they're told, or they you know, is the government giving advice, and uh, this idea of how tight the government can offer advice. F- only 40% of people turned up for evacuation when, when the when Yes. The, no, when they, the but, war but don't started. forget, they, 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 did, they did a first run of evacuation in 1938 during the Munich crisis, when everyone started digging up Hyde yeah. Park and stuff and digging foxholes yeah. um, and trenches. Then, of course, there was, there was mass panic on the 3rd of... Not mass panic, but there was real alarm and concern on the 3rd of September 1939 when, when Chamberlain yeah. kind of announced yeah. war. And well, there was an air raid. Yeah. And yeah. everyone started thinking, oh, my God. Well, this, sirens. This yeah. yeah. But, but then, it, then it just sort of... Then it kind of just sort of drifted into nothing and nothing seemed to be happening. And, yes, there were things happening out at sea and U-boats were getting, getting into fights and the Athena was being sunk and there was, a, you know, the Battle of the River Plate and various things 
um, going well, on. People but, but, don't that, know about... but that's a long way away, and but, that doesn't touch you. But hold on, what's the Athenia, right? Because I know what that is, but a lot of people don't. Know. Okay, so the Athenia because... was a troop ship. Uh, with with a liner that was full of civilians and a huge number of British um, children who were being evacuated to Canada, and yeah. um, was it U ninety nine? I think it was. Or was it U forty seven? Yeah, U forty. I can't remember which which U forty eight. It was U forty eight. U forty eight. I think. Um, and you're uh, just it, working your way through U boats in New America. U one hundred one, two hundred thirty nine. It was one of them. <laughs> it was a U boat. Yeah. yeah. Lemp was, yeah. a, was the name of the commander, and um, uh, and and he saw this ship, thought it was a um, um, a military ship, and so sank it, not realizing at the time yeah. that he discharged his torpedo that actually it was a civilian ship, and actually there were were rules in place to stop those things yes. being sunk. You know that wasn't lifted at that point, um, and lots of people died. Um, and I can't remember quite how many, but a lot of people died, and including a, a lot of more children. than a couple of hundred. Yeah, yeah, it was more it was than a couple a of hundred. Wasn't and, it? There were, and there were amazing stories of sort of you know groups of sort of um, six, seven-year-old children adrift in a dinghy for you know for for five days in yeah. the North Sea and all that. Not the, in the in the Western approaches in the Atlantic and sort of just off yes. the coast of Scotland. So it was um, it was a real shock. But apart from that, and apart from the odd naval clash, such as the Battle of River Plate in, I think, when was that? December 1939. Not a lot was going on. Um, troops were being moved to France, and that was it. Um, yeah. And, and the Chamberlain government had decided that what they were going to do was, con- was contain Germany. That you'd hold tight, you'd contain yeah. Germany, you'd contain you Germany with the economic blockade, blockade. You'd contain you contain Germany economically. And what would also happen is if, if the Germans were so stupid as to start an offensive in the West, you'd grind it to a halt. You'd end up with a reprise of trench warfare. The German government would, would, the German government would be overthrown by angry generals or disgruntled politicians. Yep. And that would be the end of the Second World War. Because after all, no one, uh, you know, the, the, what, the, 1945, uh, we see it as this, this sort of six-year li- linear thing with lots of consequential decisions and yep. uh, and also decisions that could only be made under those circumstances you know that because that, 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 uh, there's an awful lot of decisions that people make because they've got no other options yeah and they they don't they, you never see it like that at the time do you but that's no. actually the case and and uh, and what happens at the, the end of 90 middle of 1945 it's got very little to do with how people saw things in panning out in 1939 no exactly. which i think is which is the nat- nature of giant historical cascading global events with so many variables, which is, I think, sort of what's kind of what's happening now, isn't it? And the other thing, the other thing that, that sort of is worth comparing is actually how powerful the British state is or isn't. You know, what actually how much compulsion the British state had in 1939, you know, uh, not much more than now, you know. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. A- actually. When, when the shit hits the fan, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, a nation at war, it's kind of how it affects you, isn't it? It's how it directly affects you. You know, yeah. you, you, you know, if you're being bombed, you can understand that an awful lot of sacrifices need to be made. But if you're just having to yep. fork out suddenly higher taxes and there's lots of things that you used to be able to do that you can't do because there's a war on and yet yep. you're seeing absolutely nothing happening. You and just a pinch think, on consumer goods and... Yeah, all yeah, that, and all that, yeah, sort of thing. because... 
you know, the whole point about kind of containing Germany is to give the British a chance to kind of rearm further. And while the Navy is the largest in the world and we have the largest merchant fleet, and while there is a burgeoning air force which is growing day by day, what has been left behind a little bit has been the army. And that's very much Britain's traditional role. I mean, that's how she's constantly yeah. gone through history is kind of sort of having a very, very, very small standing army. And there's very good practical reasons for this. Because if you have a large army, you've got to have conscription. And, you know, in a, yeah. in a, in a Western democracy such as the one that, that Britain is, you know, that is just unconscionable in the 1930s. Yeah. You know, no one is going to put and up with that. And second thing is, is what do you then do they're really ex they're really... Well, they're really expensive armies, aren't they? Yeah, they and are. And also, we, we, we have water between us and any other army. Right, which is um, why the senior uh, service uh, is uh, the senior you know, service in the Navy. Exactly. Whereas France doesn't. France has a, France has a great long border right. with, with a, 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 a tradition of angry neighbours or being an angry neighbour itself. Yes. I mean, after all, you know, Germany only exists because, because of France rampaging all over Europe at various stages of their histories. Of course. You, 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 you know, but my, you know I mean? but my so, point out so is... That, is that's that, why we don't... But, that... but my point is, is that actually having a small army in 1939, only introducing conscription in, in, in March of 1939, which Chamberlain does with real trepidation. He thinks, oh my God, you know, how's this yeah. going to go down? And actually it's accepted quite yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. You know, and suddenly having these TA battalions, which, which have been you know, full of sort of weekend soldiers uh, doing going about yeah. that kind of normal job Monday to Friday and suddenly putting them on a war footing. You know, obviously, they're not top-notch at that stage, but that's okay because we've got France to do that. You know, it's never been part of the yeah. plan to kind of have that large army and, and the 55-division yeah. army is something, you know, that's on the horizon. That's not something that's going to happen anytime yeah. soon. But, yeah. of course, all this suddenly has to be paid for and yet what people are seeing is lots of inconvenience, lots of kind of tightening of belts and, and, and having to pay more money with no obvious benefit to them because the war seems distant and it's a, you know, it's a phony war, nothing's happening and they're sitting on their asses. But it's, but it's still the right decision. It was still the right decision pre-war to focus on the Navy and the RAF at the expense of the, of the Army. Well, well and, and um, you know, moments ago we talked about how decisions, the decisions you make are... are, are you know, abound by the circumstances you're in. Yes. So that's, that's a perfect illustration of exactly. that. Exactly. And in fact, when you look at it, what the Chamberlain government decided to do isn't particularly unreasonable. Like, it, it, it's completely, you know, because after all, what happens in May 1940, no one imagines that that's going to work. No. no one, no one for one minute thinks that that's what the, the Germans will do. Even the Germans don't think it's necessarily going to work. So, so you know, the assumption that, that, that Hitler might get overthrown is actually not that, mad at all because i mean halder who is the chief of staff of the army is going into daily conferences with hitler with a pistol in his pocket thinking yeah, i've yeah. got to shoot him i've got to shoot him and he just loses his yeah. nerve and he doesn't yeah. do it but but he's thinking yeah. about it and when hitler turns around at the end of the um of the uh, polish campaign and goes right i want to attack in the west in november everyone's sort of going are you completely insane but obviously saying yeah, yeah well, mein Führer," um, but that's what they're thinking and there is a, yes. the, the spirit of Zess, of Zossen and all the rest of it, you know, which is where the yeah. army has its headquarters. And, you know, there is this active plotting to overthrow him at this point because attacking the West in November 1939 would be absolutely insane, not just slightly insane. But, but, but he's locked into 
his steel crisis. He's locked into the fact he knows yes. his economy's only got so far to go. They've only got so much ammunition. Yep. You know, uh, he, he's he's confined by his own decision-making confines in the same way that the, the, the British government are too, and their traditions and expectations of of how war, wars are fought. Um, that, but but I think I think the you know I mean. What's really interesting about this is if we are talking analogies, you know, it feels like a phony war at the moment, some of what's happening now. And so people are still going to the pub and they're still they're still doing the socialising they've been asked not to do and and disagree, you know, and disagreeing with the government and politicking and all that sort of thing. Because I think the politics, the politics, uh, uh, certainly before May 1940, is fascinating because the Labour government, the Labour Party wants absolutely nothing to do with Chamberlain. Because there's a pacifist wing of the Labour Party who have wanted absolutely nothing to do with anything to do with ditching appeasement. You've also got the other the business the other bit of the Labour Party that wants to prove it's reliable in government, that it can deliver, that it that it isn't um, a pot full of cranks, loonies, um, you know, I mean, the, I'm always loath to do Second World War analogies, but there's some, there's some, there's some, some yep. stuff flying yeah, around yeah, yeah. here. And also you get, you also get that thing of politicians. And I think um, it's very interesting what Nicola Sturgeon did the other day. She went, I don't care about, I'm a party politician down to my core. That's me. But right now I don't care about party politics, <laughs> which is, of course, a very political thing to do because you're going. I'm above all this. I'm a states person, yeah. and I am. I am better than. I am better than your squabbling. Vote for me, yeah. right? And, and and I don't. I'm not. That's not a criticism. In fact, I, I quite admire her manoeuvre there. And 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 it, it's a, a, a completely legitimate thing to do politically. But it's all very interesting. And this was going on as well. Thirty nine, certainly to forty. Mm. Labour really trying to figure out because because Labour leadership. Also, I mean, famously, when Attlee um, is offered the deputy prime ministership, he has to go. He has to go and ask permission from the um, from the Labour conference. Yeah, he can't just go. Yep, yeah, absolutely, no problem. He has to toddle off and and and, and get it voted on. Yeah, but but because because for up till then, Labour have been biding their time and not wanting to come in the on the war effort. And of course, if if Chamberlain had had a successful war. And not been caught with his pants down in because uh, it's, it's essentially Chamberlain who's caught out in May 1940, even though Churchill takes over. If he'd had a successful and that had worked, Labour would have looked like they'd missed the patriotic bus and couldn't be relied on in time of national crisis. Mm. And so there's all there's all that going on as yeah. well. All these political plates spinning. And we tend to look back at the war and think we pulled together. We and in fact, actually, no, you know, that, that there's a lot going on. And, and after all, a big chunk of the left were pro-Soviet, so had their hands tied by the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. So it's there's a lot know, going um, on, isn't there? It's <laughs> there is a lot going on politically. It's it's really really interesting. Yeah, and yeah. You, you know, and much and, much and, much more than we like to think. You know. Yeah, and Sir John Simon does his um does his first budget, and you know it's yeah. really painful. I mean, you know, yeah. it's 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 announcing a huge amount of spending. You know, just like yeah. um, uh, Sinek's just done, like the Chancellor's just yeah. done. Um, uh, it's 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 taxes going up. It's yeah. it's it's amazing. I mean, the the parallels are really really huge. And you know, we've been looking at this this quote of, from this speech of Churchill's in October yeah. nineteen thirty nine. I think it's worth reading it out. I really do. Do it. Okay, do so it, this is this, I I this caught my eye as well. And it yeah, I mean, we've just uh, we were we were talking about it yeah. yesterday, weren't we? All today. So this is um, 
this is a broadcast by Winston Churchill, uh, which he gives over the radio on the BBC on the 1st of October 1939. And he says, when a peaceful democracy is suddenly made to fight for its life, there must be a lot of trouble and hardship in the process of turning over from peace to war. Meanwhile, patriotic men and women must not only rise above fear, they must also rise above inconvenience and perhaps most difficult of all, above boredom. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Now, um, uh, for once, we've been topical, James. I mean, that we're normally we're normally yep. wading around in the mire of events at least eighty years old, but um, suddenly we have. Uh, I mean, I, I am loath normally to because it's very fashionable to go on. A, we're not fashionable. That's not the right word. It's well worn. It's an when easy trick. Go on about the war. It's an easy. That's exactly what it is. It's an easy trick. And, and has been politically quite a lot lately. Um, but we actually have a situation here where we where there are some parallels to be drawn and maybe less. There absolutely anyway. are. I, I, the point that occurred to me is that most people in their lives, if they live to a kind of half decent age, are going to come across some absolutely appalling crisis at some point. They just are. You know, if you think about everyone, I mean, I'm, yeah, I I'm talking strictly about British people, I suppose. But I mean, that applies absolutely anywhere, yeah, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, you know, hardship is something that we have to face in our lives. It's just it just comes along occasionally. And, you know, we've been very lucky that we, yeah. you know, we haven't been caught up in a global we, war or anything like that. Um, and the, we've been the, extraordinarily the, lucky. Um, and this is one of those moments where we're suddenly kind of flung into something that's extraordinary and potentially dangerous. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now we have a question, which I think will, which was, I think is going to set us off all over again. Okay. Um. Uh. This is from Tim. Hi guys, <laughs> love the pod, obviously, and hoping to guilt you into answering the question as uh, seeing as for the second time Al's performance in Watford has had to be cancelled. The first time was because the roof was falling in. That was that was not even a global pandemic. That was like a simple structural failure. Um, yesterday, um, I wandered around my local supermarket, bewildered by the recent shopping habits of some. Given the vast amount of shipping with supplies were crossing the Atlantic, was rationing introduced because of a genuine lack of basic goods or because of the government? Um, it was... It, it, OK, so rationing's really interesting. It's, it's, it's neither. Um, it is because um, at the start of the war, only just a little over 14% of our daily food is produced within the UK. British farming is in the doldrums. It's absolutely sunk because grain can be bought much cheaper from North America. Um, meat yep. can be refrigerated and sent over from the Argentine, from New Zealand. Uh, wool can be yep. bought from Australia as well. And, you know, yep. it, farming is dying in the UK. <clears throat> what yep. um, the British government realised, Chamberlain realises, and, and realises absolutely quite correctly, is that it is a waste of shipping space to be filling it with food when we should be bringing in bauxite and rifles. copper and rifles and tanks and all sorts of things. Um, so we'd better start um, growing it ourselves. And actually, it is the second agricultural revolution in many ways because the transformation is absolutely extraordinary. By 1945, we're producing 91% of our daily calorific intake uh, at our own yep. hands, which is incredible. And that's all because of Dig for Victory and, you know, people growing vegetables. And uh, it is also growing up the heathland and the downland and all the rest of it and putting very much more of the of the country under the plough and also increasing mechanisation and using fertilisers. And it's something that it was a short term measure um, that we never got over. And one of the reasons we have agri business now and huge amounts of um, fertilizers and chemicals and stuff flung into our ground goes all the way back to Second World War. The whole point of rationing <clears throat> was nothing to do with with um, the amount of food. It was to make sure that everyone in the country got a decent, balanced diet. So, because yeah. what you didn't want was posh people um, hogging stuff. Um, and, and and the less well-off not getting anything. And in the 1930s, of course, poverty was one of the real issues of the day. And, you know, that's when people are kind of surviving off bread and dripping and all that kind of stuff. Yep. You know, but yep. also that's yep. not a very efficient way of, of, of handling your workforce. And what Britain realised was it was going to have to put a huge number of people into uniform and a huge number of people into factories to make stuff. And the more sick days you got, the less efficient you were. The, the weaker people were, the less efficient you were. Um, what you wanted was a healthy, healthy um, nation population that could do what you wanted it to do so the whole point of rationing yeah. was to make sure that everyone gets a balanced diet and gets the same now if you're rich you can still go to you know to the savoy or the criterion or whatever carriages, you know, carriages exactly yeah. and, and have a half decent have a half decent meal and drink some nice wine from the cellar that's been building up over the last hundred years um which if you're not well off you can't but if you aren't well off, you will still be able to get the food you want. Um, rationing doesn't begin until the 8th of January 1940. Um, and it's very, very light. So the only thing that's rationed in the start of 1940 is butter, sugar and bacon. Uh, rationing 
takes on a um, it's it's sort of increased in March and it increases throughout the war. Yeah. But actually, rationing is never yeah. very bad during the war. Actually, rationing is much worse after the war when when everyone is a bit short of things. But during the war, rationing is okay. Yeah. Compared to Germany, where rationing starts in the summer of 1939, um, you know, everyone's getting plenty, um, and people still say, yeah. oh, you know. I remember my mum saying, going on about sort of, you know, not spreading butter too thick on my no toast bananas. when I was a kid and all that. Yeah, and all that kind of stuff. But but actually, rationing was fine and no one went hungry, really, in the war. Now, people people listening to this go, God, God that's absolutely rubbish. I was hungry all the time. Well, you know, maybe because you were growing lad or something. But, but, you know, everyone had enough to eat, which is more than you can say for all the other major combatant nations of the war, with the exception of the United States and Canada. Yeah, and, and of course, and I mean, one of, the, one of the interesting things here is that rationing kind of worked here because yeah. you had a mobilised population who did pull together around that. Yeah. Whereas in France, for instance, where rationing was imposed on them by an, a government of occupation. There was no rationing at all. Until, of, yeah, there was no rationing up until the Blitzkrieg in May yeah. 1940. Uh, yeah, exactly, uh, and and so what, once once France was occupied by the Germans, they didn't want to be they didn't want to be um, told what they could and couldn't eat by an occupying enemy, as it were, and so the the, the, the black market went completely nuts, and uh, in, in a way, I mean, there was a black market in the UK, obviously, but but nothing like as rampant as in as in France and then the other occupied countries. No, because where the economies the, because all, the economies the, all went into a tailspin anyway. Because they're fundamentally getting enough. I mean, meat is rationed. Um, in March 1940, uh, and why is meat mm. rationed? Well, because we're not we're not growing we're, we're not producing much meat in this country, and and the pl- the digging yeah. up of the heathlands is so that you can grow more cereal, so you can have grain. Brain yeah. uh, bread is never rationed during the entire war, yeah. which is amazing, really. And of course, meat is the number one product which is coming from South America and from New Zealand and Australia yeah. uh, in these refrigerated ships. And those are, those ships are now needed for war goods, not meat. So you just go, do you know what? We're not going to have yeah. so much meat. And amazingly, everyone survived. I mean, <laughs> you know, I know but, there's this here. And, but, and again, it's another time because, of course, people are eating less meat now and going more and more, more vegan and vegetarian. But but this also, I mean, uh, uh, this also indicates, um, uh, uh, you know, when we talked to Danny Todman a couple of weeks ago, he kept on talking about British power. And um, this also shows that, that because that, fertiliser, let's not forget that fertiliser, nitrate fertilisers are competing with um, explosives as a, yes. as, a, as a resource. So in Germany, um, they are actually having to go, ah, God, you know, if we yeah. want enough fertilizer, we're not going to be able to make enough shells. Yes. Whereas the British state, the British are rich enough to go. All right, we'll di- we'll we'll reboot um, agriculture completely. Like you say, create <clears throat> agribusiness, and we'll supply the fertilizer we need for that job. We're just going to do it. Yeah. Rather than going, oh God, that means we won't have enough shells for our. 25 pounders which which is the, a, the the constant german headache is that they're thinking you know uh, how do we how do we reconcile these two things i mean the, did did but with with rationing did people strip cells was there a run on bog roll no like there is now no no there wasn't there wasn't at all i mean no i mean there were there were less consumables uh, obviously so yeah. there were less clothes there was yeah. less that kind of stuff um but there was still you you, you know so, so, so the kind of the fun things in life were cut down. I mean, you know, which is of course what we what we're seeing now. You know, yeah. you, you can't. I mean, you know, I'm absolutely devastated because not. I was just thinking, great, loads of stuff has been cancelled that I I had to do in May and June. Um, 
brilliant. I can play the whole league season. I can play every single cricket match this season for my village. And now that's bloody well gone and been stopped yeah. as well. And they've all been pulled. Yeah, you know, so that's yeah. really annoying. But, but, um, but, I mean, people... One thing... One th- one thing that did happen, though, is if you were a factory labourer, um, if you were an essential worker, your wages went up. Um, and there was, in fact, there was, the first couple of years of the war, there was, a, there was an uptick in wages. Um, and so people had more to spend. Yes. So you have this very peculiar thing where people have got more to spend, but there's less in the shops. Yes. And so you, you end up... Uh, and, and then the government thinking, oh, Christ, that's going to cause inflation. Because, again, the thing to remember always with the Second World War is the First World War is looming massively in everyone's um, memories yeah. and in policymakers' memories. Um, and, you know, so the, 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 in the same way that this government will be thinking about, a lot of, a lot of what's happening currently has been framed in terms of the crash, you know, the 2008-2009 um, crash, yeah. like how do governments take emergency action? How do they work together globally? How do they, you know, where do you put the money? Where, what, what are the levers that governments can effectively pull? And so much of... Because they, they they ended up with rationing in the First World War, didn't they? And 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 it didn't really work, and it created no. the black market, and it was kind of all over all over the shop. And so the Second World War version of rationing is very much lesson learned. Let's get into this in a much more focused and delivered way. And yep. the guy, the guy put in charge of it, if I remember right, he, he was a he, he worked in department stores, didn't he? he was an, yep. And he was an advertising expert. Mm-hmm. So so much of the campaign, we'll dig for victory. Yeah, as, as well as the as well as making sure people had. A, were being fed properly was about telling them that yep. and telling them that they were living in equity with each other and yes. that this was a common effort and a common thing that everyone had to go to and you know which which when you go to the front line in Burma you do have for instance the common efforts you know having just read your audiobook you've got Frank Messavi eating the same food as, as his men at, yes. in the admin box and living through the same hardships and that that thing that was understood although you didn't have to go to an air raid shelter did you it wasn't compulsory was it no no they didn't shut down pubs i mean they haven't shut down pubs yet here either but but um no you didn't have to do it. it's, it's, it's a the, the threat is obviously completely different but it but it's it's how yeah. we're responding to it i mean i think another sort of really interesting analogy is we don't have enough ventilators uh we don't have enough testing yeah. kits um yeah. you, you cannot possibly blame the government for that because you know you, 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 this, this is extraordinary. This is unprecedented. You know, in 1940, yeah. we didn't have enough rifles because we weren't expecting yeah. to have to form the Home Guard. Um, you know, that, that yeah, the, yeah. the decision to create the Home Guard, the, the local defence volunteers, which then becomes the Home Guard, is made on the 14th of May 1940. Um, and suddenly they don't yeah. have enough rifles. And, and that's always been, that has always been um, a traditionally kind of shown as. Uh, as a kind of sign of Britain's weakness, when actually it's a sign of Britain's strength, because yeah. you know what do you do about it? Well, you just go and buy a whole load from the Americans. So what what is the government yeah, yeah. doing now? It is chucking cash at the problem and trying to get people to well, manufacture as many of them as quickly as possible. It's trying to buy time while it throws cash at the problem and build the thing it right. needs in a real hurry. Yes, and of course, I you mean, know, and that's what the Chamberlain government was trying to do, was try and buy time, yeah, contain yeah, Germany, yeah. so that it can build up its army and, it, and its weapons and all the rest of it, and its air force. Now, now a, thing, a thing I saw on Twitter was uh, um, someone saying, next step, government of national unity. Yeah. So, obviously, there, there, are, there are obstacles to that, of course. <laughs> um, but could we see Keir Starmer, you know, once he becomes Labour leader, if he becomes Labour leader, you know, you never know, they might put that on hold, um, uh, like everything else. Uh, if he becomes Labour leader, could we, could we see him? Because after all, 
you know, that there was no need for the Tories to form a government of national unity. I nearly said national nudity then. That was a different, that's a different prospect. A government of national unity in that May 94. There's no need for them to do it. They had a majority in the House. They didn't need to do it at all. But they did anyway. Yeah. Because they knew that, that what they were going to have to do was get um, literally Labour on L- Labour and its Labour on side. And, but the price Labour insisted on was uh, Chamberlain. Yeah. Because they were, they were absolutely implacable through the, from the start of the war that they would not go into government with Chamberlain. They wanted nothing to do with him. He represented the worst of conservatism, the worst of Toryism, of the, of the Tory uh, national government's response to the, um, to the Great Depression and, and so on and, and all that. So it, you, if you were to get a government, you know, if this gets worse, if this escalates into a, a really big death toll and, and, uh, and, and, then a, and then the, you know, the economic boom, you know, like uh, that, that, that's going to run through everything and you need to govern national unity, the price of surely of Labour entering government would be Boris Johnson, wouldn't it? <laughs> so in actual fact, Boris is Chamberlain, not Churchill. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that I brilliant? Mean, That's just hilarious. So Keir Starmer is Clement Attlee. Boris is yeah. Chamberlain. Yeah. Who made, so who's Churchill? Rory well, Stewart. There, there's your... <laughs> Oh, Christ. Well, did you notice Jeremy Hunt last week uh, or earlier this week going, you know, the cuts we made to the health service and social care on reflection, the worst cuts we made like he's because they're all at it. Like he's positioning himself for after the after the deluge, you know, Um, Uh, know, don't forget, he was an entrepreneur. He made his own finances, didn't he? He made his own money. Of course he did. Yeah, 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 he did make his own money. God, that all seems like ancient history, doesn't it? But but, but this is it, by the way. But this. Oh God! Well, maybe Brexit <laughs> is appease. Brexit is a Brexit is appeasement. Yes, isn't it? Yeah. The thing that last year was the absolute uh, be all, must have. Yeah. Both parties essentially agreeing on it in one way or another, and now it's gone. For now, I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure, and I'm sure we'll get some people going. No, it hasn't, you Ramona bastards. But um, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, obviously now's not. Know, the, just... Obviously now. <laughs> Yeah, it's not the time to get into that, obviously, no. and, and it's not in. But if you did end up with a government of national unity, who who's it to be? I mean, it, it, it's mm. the strangest thing, and uh, it also also what Labour were able to do when they came into government in 1940 was go, look, we're not a bunch of cranks and loonies and uh, uh, people irresponsible people. You know, we actually have something to offer in this situation, and I think that's the. Well, I tell you what, you, you wouldn't have a Labour government in July 1945 if he hadn't been in the in the War Cabinet. Yes, exactly right. Yeah, not a chance. Yeah. I mean, you and just Morrison wouldn't. and Morrison and everyone else, you know, yeah. and Bevan and uh, all, all those people no. showing that they could be relied on when the moment came, when the chip, when the when the when the chips were down. Um, even though chips were rationed, when the chips were down, um, they were able to, you know, yeah, uh, step up. And that 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 may be that may be a thing that's yet to come from this. Anyway, well, who knows? I, I think we're, I think. Who knows? I mean, we're into soothsaying now. Anyway, yeah, that's. I think that that'll do, that'll do for now. We hope you've enjoyed this um, weirdly topical edition of We Have Ways. <laughs> we're suddenly relevant, James. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, well, it's it's fun to do these, and it'll be fun what? to do have two of your and my chats every week. Although actually, yeah. Um, yeah. I think this was this is going out on Saturday, isn't it? It's going out on Saturday. Yeah. More Saturday. More importantly, we haven't answered the question as to who is the Glenn Miller of today. <laughs> is Ed Sheeran the Glenn Miller du nos jours <laughs> <laughs> maybe 
<laughs> anyway, that's it for today. Uh, for today, but a reminder that you'll be able to listen to Zeno's magnificent novel, The Cauldron, read by me. Um, I'm a I'm into the audiobook gig now. Each day on the podcast, this week and next. If you think so, and the week after, I think. If you think self isolation at home is tough, try being isolated north of the Nader Rhine, surrounded by Germans, and no sign of thirty core getting to you anytime soon. James and I will be back um, on Tuesday. Uh, don't forget to wash your hands. Call your mum and dad, but don't go and see them. But for now, Alfie Zane, one and all. Cheerio.